Welcome to our 39th episode of Two Tankers and a Cat. We're your host, I'm Charlie. And this is Russell. Well, Russell, how have you been feeling? Oh, pretty good. Anything good going into your life? Oh, I guess. Work. Is that good? Uh, I got an email um, from some of our listeners. And they were wondering if we were ever going to do a police podcast. Ah, like interesting. They would like, you know, some of the cold cases and cases that we worked on and some of the other stuff. That would be neat. So maybe we should do a cop talk. Think about that. Yeah. Yeah. Heck yeah. A couple police officers. We could actually have a phone in line or something. Someone want to talk cop talk. Or if they had questions, you know. Like, is it true there's a quota on police? Oh, on on parking like, on parking tickets? Oh, <laughs> no, no. oh, you know what? We're, 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 we got off on this. We're, we need to directly refocus and get back on tanks. Um, but yeah, if you, in the future you think that you'd like to hear about some of our police stuff and escapades. Even Craig Moore, he's a yeah. police officer over in yeah. Scotland. We could hit him up. Heck yeah. yeah. I'm sure he's got some stories. Uh, we also got an email from a friend of yours. Uh, tell me about that. Yeah, I received an email the other day from Sean from Scott Air Force Base in Illinois. He just wanted to say that he found our podcast on Spotify and he absolutely loves the show. Awesome. Thanks. Exactly. Means a lot to us, man. Especially if he's on a Air Force base. I know. Mad props. Yeah. Of course, you know everybody keeps saying, "When are we going to do these uh, flying tanks?" You know, like know. the A-10 and yeah. some of the other yeah. tank killers that were in the sky. Sure. Um, we're going to get on that. Um, we also got a uh, talk about Craig Moore. Yeah. Uh, he sent us an email and he says, listen, we were on, uh, you, you tell it. He give us an email the other day. He says, hi guys in London. I asked my Amazon echo Alexa to play the two tankers in a cat podcast from tune in. And I guess it worked. <laughs> so here's, here's one of the guys that we have mad respect for Greg uh, Moore. Exactly. And he's like, uh, Alexa play the two tankers in a cat podcast from tune in. It kicks on. I know. So if you guys are listening through Google Home or, uh, you know, Alexa or something like that and it works, uh, send us an email. Yeah, send us an email. <laughs> tell us what you're listening to us through and, and maybe other areas that we've missed. I mean, that you want to listen to us through that you can't get to us. You know what? We have so many thousands of people downloading us now. I know. And... uh just on Podbean alone, I think it was like 12,700 downloads since and we, we started thank this. Every like, one of you. Wow. I mean, we've had people just say, listen, you said that wrong. Here's a shocking thing that Charlie messes up on some of the German <laughs> names and other names. You know, I'm yeah. going to use some of you guys' support money out there, I think, to send Charlie to language school. Yeah. Thank you to our Patreon users. <laughs> I can learn how to speak English. Y'all have a good day. <laughs> Sounds like we're kind of stalling on this episode, and, and again, we're going to have to be real careful how we do this. The first key point, what are we talking about? Well, we're going to talk about the Merkava Mark I main battle tank, or 
armor personnel carrier. Well, it's a main battle tank. Yeah. But, but it also carries what? I think the Mark I carries up to 10 people. Uh, the second point, and we're kind of dancing around this, but uh, it's going to be about the 1982 Lebanon War, dubbed Operation Peace for Galilee or uh, Invasion of Lebanon. Oh, depends on which side. Yeah. Okay, so let me get into this. Okay, it's sad in the world today that we must make a politically correct waiver. Uh, at no time does Two Tankers and a Cat podcast plan to offend anyone talking about the history of this episode. We are simply bringing the facts as we know them as of now. We neither show support or non-support for any sides involved. We are simply talking tanks and the battles they were involved in. Okay, Russell, with that waiver said, and we've kind of danced around it, let's go ahead and get into this one. Sounds good. The Mark I, operational since 1978, is the original design created as a result of Israel Tall's decision and was fabricated and designed for mass production. The Mark I weighed 63 tons and had a 900 horsepower diesel engine with a power to weight ratio of 14 horsepower per ton. It was armed with the 105mm M64 L71A main gun, a licensed copy of the British Royal Ordnance L7, also had two 7.62mm machine guns for anti-infantry defense, and a 60mm mortar mounted externally with the mortar operator not completely protected by the tank's hull. Okay, they got a mortar on it, but he's not really protected. Uh, Yeah. Oh, boy. Interesting. Uh, Okay. The general design borrows the tracks and road wheels from the British Centurion tank, which had seen extensive use during the Yom Kippur War and performed well in the rocky terrain of the Golan. The Merkava was first used in combat during the 1982 Lebanon War, where Israel deployed 180 units. Although they were a success, the M113 armor personnel carriers that accompanied them were found to have several defects and were withdrawn. Merkavas were converted into makeshift APCs, or armored ambulances, by taking out the palleted ammunition racks in storage. Ten soldiers or walking wounded could enter and exit through the rear door. After the war, many adjustments and additions were noted and designed, the most important being that the 60mm mortar needed to be installed within the hull and engineered for remote firing. That uh, makes sense. It does. makes a y- lot more y- sense. You know what? If you're getting shot at... I wouldn't want to be the tank commander that no. looked at the guy and said, you know what, you need to get up yeah, there. Yeah. Like, well, we're we're hot right now. Oh, we're, in a, we're in a free fire zone. Exactly. That would, that would be one thing I'd be screaming to fix. Yeah. And the remote firing would be a valuable feature that the Israelis had initially encountered on their Centurion Mark III's with their 2-inch Mark III mortar. A shot trap was found beneath the rear of the turret bustle where a well-placed shot could jam the turret completely. The installation of chain netting to disperse and destroy rocket-propelled grenades and anti-tank rockets before impacting the primary armor increased survivability. So when you're looking at this tank and you see the hanging uh, balls and chains and stuff like that, I didn't understand that what that was. I was like, why, why have they got these hanging out? Well, they found out there was a shot trap back there. If you fired an RPG underneath that, or an anti-tank rocket, it was bad news. Wow. So they just welded on these balls and chains, and it worked. And it worked. Dispersed so, and destroyed the rocket-propelled grenades. So after the 1982 war, uh, they took 
the tanker's complaints and suggestions, they would like jump on this, and the engineers said, "Oh, oh, okay, yeah, you know, we don't want people getting killed, so we're gonna we're gonna kind of change it around." Um, go ahead, Russell, give us a just a brief overview of the other marks. The Markarva Mark II was first produced into general service in April of 1983. While fundamentally the same as the Merkava Mark I, it incorporated numerous small adjustments as a result of the previous year's incursion in Lebanon. The new tank was optimized for urban warfare and low-intensity conflicts with a weight and engine no greater than the Mark I. So, like we were talking about, putting the ball and chains on, bringing the mortar in, adding some more optics, uh, some stuff like that. Okay, uh, let's go into the Mark III. The Mark III was introduced in December 1989 and was in production until 2003. Compared to the Markava II, it it has upgrades to the drivetrain, powertrain, armament, and electronic systems. The most prominent addition was the incorporation of the locally developed IMI 120mm gun. This gun and a larger 1200 horsepower diesel engine Increased the total weight of the tank to 65 tons. Wow. That's what, 143,000 pounds? Pounds. Incredible. Wow. But the larger engine increased the maximum cruising speed to 60 kilometers per hour, or 37 miles per hour. Cutting across rocky desert at 37 miles an hour. Not too shabby. With 10 people in the back. Yeah. Okay. And I guess the newest one is the Mark IV. Tell us about that. Yeah, the Mark IV includes the larger 120 millimeter main gun of the previous versions, but can fire a wider variety of ammunition, including heat and sabot rounds like the APF SDS, Kinetic Energy Penetrator, uh, using an electrical semi-automatic revolving magazine for 10 rounds. It also includes a much larger 12.7 millimeter machine gun for anti-vehicle operations. They got a 10-round mag in, in this thing, and, and they've upped the machine gun not for, you know, basically any personnel, yeah. but to take out trucks and every, every other type of <laughs> light vehicle. The Merkava Mark I outperformed contemporary Syrian T-62 tanks and proved to be a tough nut for anti-tank weapons of the time, such as the AT-3 Sager and the RPG-7. The Mark I was a significant improvement over the previous Israeli Centurion's main battle tanks. The tank has an unusual layout with a front-mounted engine. Engine in the front, boy, that's that's kind of unusual, I too. know, that is. It uh, reflects a unique requirement of the Israeli MOD. Furthermore, it can carry 10 fully equipped troops at the rear at a cost at the reduced a- ammunition loadout. Uh, the unique feature allows to carry infantry into battle or evacuate casualties uh, under heavy armor. Dismounts enter and leave tank via the rear hatch. Now, if you haven't seen video of this tank in an operation, that hatch ain't real big. No, it's I, not. I, I don't think I'll have my big old butt get in yeah. there. But the turret of the Mark I has an unusual shape. A uh, front, front-mounted front engine uh, transmission also provides uh, improved frontal protection. The tank is fitted with the NBC protection and automatic fire extinguisher systems as a uh, as standard. Uh, at the time of its introduction, the Mark I was one of the most protected tanks in the world so when they came out they're like okay this is pretty protected yeah and and we can use it to move in a squad of troops under heavy heavy fire 
or if somebody's hurt, we can go in there and get them, load them up, and bring them out. You know, Russell, why don't you just give us the stats on the uh, Mervaka? How do you say it again? Merkava. God, people are going to write in and say, <laughs> uh, we didn't care about what you said. You don't know how to say it right. God, Lord. Uh, tell us about the stats. And I know we've talked about, you know, some of the other marks, but just give us the Mark 1 stat. Yeah, the Merkava Mark 1 had about 2,000 of them built. It entered service in 1978. It had a crew of four men um, and 10 passengers. It weighed approximately 60 tons, had a length of 8.63 meters. No, that's with the gun forward. With the gun forward, yeah, including the gun length. It had a whole length of 7.45 meters, a width of 3.7 meters, and a height of 2.64 meters. The armament on the Mark I had a main gun of 105 millimeter rifled gun. Uh, machine guns had three 7.62 millimeter machine guns. Had an elevation range of negative 8.5 to a positive 20 degrees. A negative 8.5. That's pretty good depression. Not on bad. Tank. Not bad gun depression at all. Uh, the traverse range is about 360 degrees. So total traverse. Yeah. Had an ammunition load. Uh, main gun, 62 rounds. Uh, machine guns carried about 10,000 rounds of that for the machine guns. It had an AVDS 1790-6A diesel engine with about 908 horsepower. Maximum road speed was 46 kilometers per hour, and it had a range of about 400 kilometers. Good speed, good range, good gun, good protection, can load up crews. All right, I'm following this yeah. tank. I'm kind of liking know, it so far. Its maneuverability included a... A gradient of 60%, a side slope of 40%, and a vertical step of 1 meter, trenches of 3 meters, and fording of 1.4 meters. 3 meters on a trench, that that's actually pretty good. Yeah, I mean, it it's is. not great, but it, it's better than exactly. some of the old, yeah. old stuff. Of it. Better yeah. than the Sherman. <laughs> better than the Lee. Yeah. Okay, we had mentioned the 1982 uh, Lebanon War. And again, I want to state that we are not free either side we are only interested in the history uh if we get something wrong please feel free to contact us if you think we uh said something wrong or gave one side better light that was not our intention um russell uh, this is kind of a sensitive topic but let's go ahead and get into it okay the 1982 lebanon war dubbed operation peace for galilee by the israeli government and known in lebanon as the invasion began on June 6, 1982, when the Israel Defense Forces, or the IDF, invaded southern Lebanon. The military operation was launched after gunmen from Abu Nidal's organization attempted to assassinate Shlomo Argov, Israel's ambassador to the United Kingdom. Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin blamed Abu Nidal and the PLO for the incident and treated the incident as a caucus bell for the invasion. Abu Nadel's real name was uh, Sabri Kali Albana, and, and I'm not trying to mess his name up, and you guys know I mess up his name. Uh, he was the founder of Fahad, a militant Palestinian uh, splinter group more commonly known as the Ab- Abdu uh, Nadal organization, or ANO. At the height of its militancy in the 1970s and 1980s, uh, the ANO was widely regarded as the most 
ruthless of the Palestinian groups. Uh, Abdul Nadal, uh, which translates to the father of the struggle, formed the ANO in October of 1974 after a split from the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO, acting as a freelance contractor. Abdul Nadal is believed to have ordered attacks in uh, 20 countries and killing over 300 people. Now again, we're, we're not against or anything, we're just reporting on the history. Okay, Russ, tell us uh, about the actual battle. On June 6, 1982, Israeli forces, under direction of Defense Minister Ariel Sharon, launched a three-pronged invasion of southern Lebanon in Operation Peace for Galilee. Roughly 60,000 troops and more than 800 tanks, heavily supported by aircraft, attack helicopters, artillery, and missile boats, crossed the Israel-Lebanon border in three areas. Simultaneously, Israeli armor Paratroopers and naval commandos set sail in amphibious landing ships from Ashdod towards the Lebanese coast north of Sidon. Israel's publicly stated objective was to push PLO forces back 40 kilometers or 25 miles to the north. The westernmost Israeli force was to advance up the coastal road to Tari. Its mission was to bypass Tari and destroy three PLO camps in the area, then move up the coast towards Sidon and Damor. While Israeli forces would simultaneously conduct an amphibious landing north of Sidon to cut off the retreat of PLO forces there. In the center, two divisions were to advance both north and south of the high ground overlooked by Beaufort Castle, which was being used as a PLO stronghold, and take the road junction at Naboth, while an elite reconnaissance battalion was to take the castle itself. The two divisions were then to split, with one heading west to link up the forces along the coast and another towards Jazin, and from there along the right flank of Syrian forces in the Bekaa Valley. The easternmost Israeli force, the largest of the three, advanced to the Bekaa Valley. Its mission was to prevent Syrian reinforcements from being sent and to stop Syrian forces from attempting to interfere with the operation on the coastal road. The advance on Beirut, the advance along the coastal road, preceded by a heavy artillery bombardment and airstrike, but quickly became bogged down and was soon behind schedule. The narrowness of the road forced a slow advance. Israeli armor became stuck in a large traffic jam. Several armored vehicles were knocked out by PLO fighters with anti-tank weaponry hiding in tree groves along the road. One of the lead battalions, which was supposed to bypass Tyree, and establish a blocking position to the north of the city, made a wrong turn and found itself in the center of the city where it was ambushed. Now, that'd be rough. Oh, wow, yeah. One wrong turn oh, and you're, yeah. in, you're in an yeah. ambush. Naval commando units then came ashore to probe enemy defenses and secure the landing site, one of which swam to the mouth of uh, Wally River and another which came ashore on the landing beach in rubber dinghies. After a brief gun battle with armed Palestinians, the main landing began with paratroopers coming ashore in rubber dinghies to establish a beachhead followed by three landing crafts that unloaded troops and armor. Over the following days, the three landing ships would run between Israel and Lebanon, shuttling more troops and armor onto the beachhead. The PLO response was limited to ineffective mortar fire while Israeli missile boats and aircraft attacked Palestinian positions in response. In a total, about 2,400 soldiers and 400 tanks and armored 
personnel carriers were landed. From the beach, these forces advanced on Sedan, supported by naval gunfire from the missile boats. At the same time, Israeli forces in the center sector towards Jazin, while those in the eastern sector remained in place, but began setting up heavy artillery positions that put Syrian SAM surface-to-air missile uh, units in artillery range. So basically, they moved up their artillery where they had the Syrians had their uh, surface-to-air missiles to use against the Israeli aircraft, and now those positions are in artillery range. Fighting broke out in Jazin between the Israelis and Syrian forces holding the town, and the Battle of Jazin. Israeli forces consisting of two tank battalions, supported by a reconnaissance company, an engineering platoon, took Jazin in a fierce day-long battle against a Syrian battalion, then repulsed a fierce counterattack by dozens of Syrian commandos during the night in combat that lasted until dawn. In an effort to establish air superiority and greater freedom of action, the Israeli Air Force launched Operation Mole Cricket in an effort to establish air superiority and greater freedom of action. The Israeli Air Force launched Operation Mole Cricket 19 on June 9th. During the course of operation, the Israeli Air Force scored a dramatic victory over the Syrians, shooting down 29 Syrian planes and also destroying 17 Syrian anti-aircraft missile batteries, employing electronic warfare methods to confuse and jam the Syrian radars. They're basically establishing air superiority. And if we learned anything from oh, yeah. you know, Desert exactly. Storm and everything else, yes. that's important. You've got to, yeah. Later that night, an Israeli air attack destroyed a Syrian armored brigade moving south from Bolbek, and the IAF attacked and destroyed six more Syrian SAM batteries the following day. The easternmost Israeli force, which had been stationary, resumed its advance forward up the Bekaa Valley. In the east, Israeli forces advanced along four main routes towards Jub Janin, along both sides of the Quarun Reservoir. The Syrians resisted fiercely. Syrian infantrymen, armed with anti-tank weapons, staged ambushes against Israeli tanks, and Syrian gazelle helicopters, armed with hot missiles, proved effective against Israeli armor. However, the Israelis managed to capture the valley floor, and the Syrians retreated. The Israelis captured Rechaya, advanced through Kafar Kwok, and took the outskirts of Yanta. Jub Janine also fell to the Israelis. The extent of Israeli advances ensured that Syrian reinforcements were blocked from deploying west of the Korun Reservoir. So this is some pretty fierce fighting. Oh, yeah. Again, we're not showing support for either side. We're just talking that these guys were in a serious fight. Both sides are fighting as hard as they can. An Israeli armored battalion then probed past Jub Janin to the town of Sultan Yakub and was ambushed by Syrian forces lying in wait. In the Battle of Sultan Yakub, the Israelis fought fiercely to extricate themselves and called in reinforcements and artillery fire to cover the withdrawal. After six hours, the Israelis managed to retreat. In addition, another major air battle erupted in which the Israeli Air Force shot down 25 Syrian jets and four helicopters. On June 11th, Israel and Syria announced that they had agreed to a ceasefire at noon, which would not include the PLO. The ceasefire was to come into effect at noon. Just before the ceasefire was to take effect, the Syrians moved a column of T-72 tanks so as to position it against Israeli forces in the valley. Israeli infantry teams armed with the BGM-71 tow missiles 
or anti-tank missiles, ambushed the Syrian column, destroying 11 tanks. Another air battle also occurred with the Israelis shooting down 18 more uh, Syrian jets. On 13th June, less than 12 hours after the Israeli PLO ceasefire had gone into effect, it fell apart and heavy fighting erupted around Kahid. As the fighting raged, the IDF armor units struck northeast, attempting to bypass Kadel and advance on Badad, which overlooked the airport and could be used as another staging point to cut Beirut-Damascus Highway. By the 14th of June, Syrian forces were being deployed to Kahid. Syrian units in Beirut and three commando battalions armed with anti-tank weaponry took up defensive positions southwest of the airport to block any Israeli attempt to capture it. The Israelis attempted to flank these defenses by moving off the road past Shawif, up a narrow, steep, and winding road towards Badad, but were ambushed by a uh, Syrian commando battalion. The Syrians attacked Israeli armor with rocket-propelled grenades and anti-tank missiles at close range. Israeli infantry dismounted and engaged the Syrians. Fierce fighting took place, and the Israelis calling in artillery at very close range on themselves. You know, Russ, we're talking that these guys are... In, in the fight. Yeah. And, and they're calling in artillery because they're like, it's danger close. Yeah, exactly. On June 22nd, the IDF launched an operation to capture the highway. The Israeli Air Force flew highly effective missions against Syrian positions and vehicles, with Israeli pilots reporting 130 enemy vehicles destroyed. Israeli long-range artillery targeted Syrian strongpoints to the north. Israeli armored forces with artillery support attacked Syrian positions along the highway with the objective of driving them from the highway all the way back to the edge of the Beka Valley. With air and artillery support mostly limited to targets north of the highway, the fighting was fierce, especially to the south. By the end of the day, Israel accepted an American request for a ceasefire and halted its offensive, but the ceasefire collapsed the following day and the fighting resumed. The Israelis managed to push to the eastern Beka Valley, and on June 24th, began to shell the outskirts of Shatara, which was at the northern mouth of the Beka Valley and served as headquarters of all Syrian forces there. It was also the last major obstacle before the Syrian border, as well as Syria's capital Damascus itself. The Israelis managed to reach the mountain pass near the village of Dar al-Badar, which was the last obstacle before Shatara. The Syrians fought fiercely to hold the pass, and the Israeli advance halted with the Israelis holding their ground, and harassing the Syrians with artillery fire. By June 25th, with the remaining Syrian positions on and north of the highway no longer tenable, the Syrians withdrew. The Israelis allowed the withdrawal to occur, but conducted artillery harassment and continued to shell the outskirts of Shatara. The Syrians attempted to deploy a SAM battery in the Beka Valley at midnight, but Israeli intelligence detected this, and the battery was destroyed in an Israeli air attack. By the end of the day, a ceasefire was announced. The Israelis stopped at their present positions. The war witnessed the Israeli Merkava uh, main battle tank make its first combat de- debut, squaring off against Syrian T-72 tanks. During these engagements, the Israelis claimed that Mark I proved superior to the T-72, destroying a number of them without sustaining a single loss to T-72 fire. The dominance of Israeli technology and tactics during the war was one of the factors that changed the Warsaw's pact mindset on tank warfare. 
The T-72 tanks on the Syrian 2nd Armored Division were credited with not only halting the advance of the Israeli Armored Brigade on Rashah on the 10th of June, but pushing them back. They also tallied the destruction of 33 tanks and the capture of an M60 Patton. What's an M60 Patton doing? I don't know. Good question. Uh, Which was sent to Damascus and thence uh, transported to Moscow. So they capture an M60 Patton Uh, tank and they're like, hey, look what we got. And then (laughs) Moscow's like, hey, let's go ahead and get this. Uh, The totals of the war uh, on the Israeli side, they had 657 dead. They had eight captured. They had 33 tanks lost, uh, 175 uh, armored personnel carriers destroyed or damaged, one aircraft lost, and two helicopters lost. Uh, The PLO had 2,400 killed, 6,000 captured, and had lost 50 tanks. Syrian losses were 1,200 killed, 296 captured, 300 tanks lost, 150 APCs lost, 100 artillery pieces lost, 86 aircraft lost, 12 helicopters lost, and 29 surface-to-air missile batteries lost. Well, I hope you enjoyed this. And remember, there is a lot more to this battle. And we, again, we are not taking any sides. Um, as you can tell, what, what, or hopefully what you can tell that me and Russ were trying to be fair and impartial and just to give you the history. But there is a ton of history that you guys don't know about this battle, and you should research it yourselves. We always say this. Crack a book get informed, read about this. This was a big tank battle. The Mark I going up there, but also the Israelis had Centurions and apparently an M60 Patton. Yeah. And if you what, don't like to read, there's other resources out there, folks. Yeah. I mean, you can at yeah. least pop onto YouTube yeah. or something like that. I, I enjoy the YouTube videos. Exactly. Uh, get out there and learn about it. There, There's a guy named Mark uh, Felton. Uh, he does a d- bunch of stuff. Uh, very clean, very clean yeah. broadcast. Uh, and I, his voice is just so soothing. <laughs> and, and there's other people out there uh, that uh, Francis Pullman's got a armored stuff. He talks about the KV-1 tank. But again, uh, we want to give a shout out to our Patreon. Get us started on that, Russ. Yeah, we want to thank Alejandro Martinez. He's been with us for a little while now. and Appreciate him. No doubt. Andy Crow. Bjorn Ben, uh, Christy McCarty, Kevin Shin, Mark Drake, ODS Theron, and everybody's friend, Rick Schmidt. Rick, hey. <laughs> Thank you, guys. You, you guys are all so much appreciated. You've been with us pretty much from the start of all this and means a lot. So we're, we're still trying to get the gifts packed up. Yeah. Uh, we are going to send a, our Patreon guys some something cool. Yeah. Um, as long as you've supplied an address to us, we'll, we'll get you out. Uh, Francis Pullman has said that he's waiting on a second edition of his book uh, to come out or some more copies to be made. As soon as we get that book, we're going to announce it on Facebook. We will give it away. Yeah. And we may even come up with some kind of a uh, Facebook drive or something to give that away. Oh, that'd be awesome. Try to get us some more followers on Facebook and something like that. We'll we'll see how it works out. Remember, it doesn't cost anything to hit the follow button on the Facebook. Facebook and show your support and gives a thumbs up on the or thumbs down. Yeah. We'll take a thumbs down. And if you don't, if you haven't commented or anything on uh, Apple podcasts or something like that, make sure you give us a good review on there and helps out a lot too. Absolutely. It really does. Uh, 
Well, I hope everybody enjoyed the episode. You know, kind of rough uh, talking about some of these battles and stuff like that. Uh, you know, my personal opinion, and I know it's yours too, that we don't want to see anybody die. Yeah. But we want to see these tanks. Yeah. You know, if you're going to build tanks, make, uh-huh. make museums. Yeah, D- exactly. Don't, yep. don't, don't kill anybody. Yeah. Uh, well, anyway, you guys have a great week. This is Charlie signing off. And this is Russell. Happy tanking. And as always, have a great week.